makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha. Ambetu Wastelo, Chante Waste Napechus Apielo, Le Unkipiki, Hewastelo. Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. It's good for all of us to be here. This is First Voices Radio. I'm Tiokazin Ghost Horse, sending you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio, and Liz Hill is the producer of First Voices Radio. Our studio engineer, ally guide, is the Malcolm Byrne. You can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archive downloading and listening. I would like to preface this interview with a historical timeline of 1580 to 1620 to 1996 to the present, where... 950 colonial institutions in Canada enforced and still enforcing educational practices on First Nations, Native or Indigenous peoples of the Western Hemisphere. The work you will hear is just a starting place of truth-telling how colonial religions and governments played a role in the demise of Indigenous peoples of Canada and the rest of Northern and the Southern continents. Canadian Residential Schools and Colonial Institutions Database is a comprehensive database of residential schools, Indian hospitals, and Indian day schools in Canada. And some of the ongoing research is now available at crscid.com. Our guest has begun an interactive database as a way for people to actually find the knowledge and information that will help bring the process of healing to survivors and to their families affected. If you consider yourself one of the Native or First Nations allies, if you're a person of faith or not, this concerns you in so many ways. The history, the future, and the present all combine to bring the earth and human beings to a place of communication that will change outdated stereotypical ideas and unaware bias about First Nations, Indigenous or Native peoples in the Western Hemisphere. And so it will take all of us moving forward to truly transform society. I welcome back Dr. Paulette Steves to First Voices Radio. Dr. Paulette Steves is Cree and Métis. She is an associate professor in sociology at Algoma University in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and, and a Canada Research Chair in Healing and Reconciliation. 
while its research focuses on the Pleistocene history of the Western Hemisphere, reclaiming and rewriting indigenous histories and healing and reconciliation. And she argues that indigenous peoples were present in the Western Hemisphere as early as 100,000 years ago and possibly much earlier. Her first book, which should be in every library, is The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Americas, published in July of 2021 by the University of Nebraska Press. Pauletta said that rewriting and unerasing Indigenous histories becomes a part of healing and reconciliation, transforming public consciousness and confronting and challenging racism. During this interview, I talk with Paulette about her current work on the Canadian Residential Schools and Colonial Institutions Database, 1620 to the present. There are now 950 sites in the database. Paulette says, the numbers of missing and deceased children who were forced to attend residential schools in Canada may never be known. We must work to find the ones we can to locate the hundreds of unmarked burials at residential schools inundate schools and Indian hospitals and to acknowledge the children and honor their memories. And I'll add to that perhaps tens of thousands of unmarked graves throughout Canada. So you can visit the website crscid.com database for more information. And if you notice the school or institution is missing, email the information to paulette.steves at algomau.ca and the information will be added to the database. And now I'd like you to join us in welcoming Dr. Paulette Steves to First Voices Radio as we continue in conversation. Thank you for joining us here on First Voices, Paulette Steves. I understand you built a database on residential schools, Indian day schools, and Indian hospitals in Canada from, as you would say, 100 or so years from 1620 to the recent data that you have drawn up. Can you tell us about all these colonial institutions that you started truth-telling? Yeah, usually when this is discussed, when residential schools are discussed by the government and a lot of their agencies and other people, they say that it started in, uh, you know, after Confederation, so in the late 1880s. But when I started looking into residential schools, and actually I found my my first record of the earliest school in a um, document by a Native American group in the USA that was discussing uh, Indian education. And it said that uh, the first school in the U.S. opened, I think it was 1580, and the first one in Canada opened in 1620 in Quebec City. And I thought, well, that's hundreds and hundreds of years more than what the government is admitting. And that means that it wasn't three or four generations of, you know, Native American and First Nations people that were impacted by this, but probably over 16 to 20 generations minimally. And that's a huge difference. So I, I'm looking at this as, you know, what, what was the impact on, on, you know, Indigenous people in the United States and Canada residential schools? And you, can, you can't find one First Nations, Native American, Inuit, or Métis person today that is not impacted by the history of residential schools and intergenerational trauma. So I really wanted to do this database and this website to really provide a really strong, clear picture for people on the history of this type of genocide and colonization that residential schools were in North America. Paul, it seems I'm looking at the map that people could look at, you know, the residential schools, the Indian day schools, the Indian hospitals of Canada, 
it would seem going through these institutions in Canada, but the Indian day schools, the, the residential schools, the Indian hospitals all seem to me to have this militaristic type of atmosphere, sanitizing everything just to get us away as Native people from our original thinking. And, and that's what I'm getting out of what I'm reading in, in your interactive site, crscid.com. Can you tell us about, you know, maybe the impact, as you, you would say, the uh, intergenerational trauma? Yeah, it's um, it's really traumatic. And I mean, we all, pretty much all of us have parents or grandparents that were in uh, residential schools. And yeah, you know what? Many of them were started in what were former military barracks or military sites. Um, and there was a very militarized mind because, you know, they needed to kill the Indian and save the child. So these were not schools, right? These were institutes of genocide, um, the horrors that people suffered. And, and like you say, I've only done the database for Canada. And so far, I have 1,950 sites on that database. That's just Canada. So I would imagine for the United States, it would be much a much larger number. But I, I originally started looking at this because I was asked to assist a group of elders um, here at Algoma University because in Canada, of course, you know, in Kamloops, they discovered over 215 possibly unmarked burials. So I was thinking, you know, if, if people follow what the government says and they're only looking at residential schools, the government funded, there's going to be a lot of unmarked burials that are missed. Leave no child behind. We can leave no child behind. The children have spoken. They have shown us where they are. And it's not that, you know, First Nations and Native American and Inuit and Métis people didn't know this. There are many survivor stories uh, where they witnessed burials, where they had to dig the graves for deceased children, where they remember the children that, you know, mysteriously went missing. Well, where did they go? Well, there's stories that some of them were uh, cremated, that, that young babies were cremated. And, you know, Canadians have never really believed a lot of this history but since we've completed the truth and reconciliation in Canada now there's a lot of documented evidence of this history the unmarked burials further highlight the evidence of the brutality against um, indigenous people and indigenous children in Canada and I know it was much the same in the United States these burials the majority of them were not documented they were not marked and so what they represent are, are possible um, criminal sites, you know, sites of undocumented crimes. And there are a number of people, and this is a part of the database I'm still working on, there are a number of former priests and nuns and workers at residential schools that have been charged with um, sex, sexual crimes and violence against indigenous children at these schools and gone to jail. So it's not like we didn't know this happened. We've always known this has happened. But I wanted to create the database because I want in my way to work to honor those children and to find all of those children. So every one of those 950 sites in Canada on my database needs to be um, examined with ground penetrating radar for unmarked burials. 
and this is not all of the sites. There were also sites I was reading about one yesterday that were called um, training institutes or industrial schools. So these were um, these were places where before residential schools quite often came into being, they pretty much kidnapped uh, you know Native American and First Nations children as forced labor and slave labor. And oh, we're gonna train them for a skill. We're gonna train them to do a job. No, they were unpaid labor. But the elders here have also talked to me about, you know, their knowledge of these so-called industrial schools in Ontario. So there's still a whole section of colonial institutes I haven't even begun to uh, uncover yet. And that history that we'll continue to work on finding. And may I add and even question that there may be some personal diaries maybe kept by priests and nuns that, and even, I would say, victims but survivors of these residential schools and have you delved into maybe there's something out there that we haven't seen? There are a lot of uh, survivor stories. So there's one site that the Canadian Geographic Society did, and it's not a comprehensive site, but it's a very interesting site with an interactive map. And part of the the map is you can click on a site and it will pop up a little box and you'll see a recording of a survivor talking. So there's one lady from the Eastern part of Canada and she talks about being at an Indian hospital. I think it was for over eight years. These were segregated hospitals. People were locked up in these hospitals and they weren't allowed to leave. And when they died, they were just buried quite often in unmarked graves around the hospital. So there are a lot of survivor stories, and that would be a really good piece of research to continue doing. Of course, this all requires funding. We have to apply for grants to do this work, but to continue to gather survivor stories of their experiences. And I know there was a case here in Ontario a few years back where a lady remembered when her and her little brother were at a residential school and um, he had dropped his mitten on the ice and the, the priest made him go back and get it and he fell in the water and he drowned and he died and they buried him there. And she never forgot. She remembered it. She was very young, like four or five, but she remembered exactly where they buried him. And they got permission to go back and look for his burial and exhume him and return him to his home community. So this is, you know, some of the work that we need to consider moving forward is if communities want their children exhumed and returned to their home territories, then that should definitely take place. Um, it, it's a little, um, it's hard at some places because like here at Shinwalk Residential School, there were children, I think, from over 200 or 250 communities. So that's a lot of work to, you know, find out if there are unmarked burials and then who they might be and what community they come from. But we certainly have to center this work in the communities and take our lead from communities that want to continue to do this work. But now that we have a comprehensive database where everything is in one place, um, it's a really good starting point for doing a lot of this work. I'm not too sure if Canada has such a thing as statute of limitations. Has that come into play for you? No, it hasn't. If there, uh, at least in my mind, if there was a crime, there was a crime. If there's an unmarked burial, that's a possible crime site and it needs to be investigated as such. But once again, that is up to each community to decide that for themselves. So right now, a lot of First Nations communities are working to create protocols and processes for this. 
Um, and the government has provided some funding, the federal and provincial governments have provided some funding for communities to do this work. I was able to get the first piece uh, of small area. So around the university I teach at, Shinwok is now Algoma University. It was a former residential school. It's um, a site that has uh, a number of people involved in caring for the site. So there's different groups that are responsible for different areas of the site. The area directly surrounding the buildings of Algoma University is, is um, an Anishinaabe site, and we work with the Children of Shinwak Alumni Association. And we did do, uh, I, I was able to get a, a really big archaeology firm to do this for free. They came and did ground penetrating radar on one small area of the site where we know that within the next year that we're going to have to disturb that ground to replace the building. So we were able to do that site. That analysis of the, those scans are still ongoing. But that's, you know, one small piece of the site. There, there's a cemetery on this site. And I've had a lot of people tell me about areas they know where there are unmarked burials. So there's a lot more work to do. Um, and one of the communities, Garden River, has, has uh, gotten the grant. And they're going to be doing some of that work. But it's really a... Um, a community project, but I think, you know, along with doing that work, we should be collecting the stories of the survivors, right? Because it's the survivors that have come to me quietly and told me, well, I know where there's an unmarked burial over here and there's one over here. They remember those kinds of things stick in your mind, right? So I'm, I'm wondering, in the United States, most likely in Canada, they're, as you say, collecting stories but there are also remains of artifacts that have passed through generations of, of non-Native people in the United States and probably in Canada also, but that there's stories behind these artifacts and like a pipe or came to, since um, the, the, the father of a child that was taking the boarding school, in this case to, uh, to Carlisle Indian Boarding School, was a pipe. And that pipe was taken away. All these artifacts were taken away from the children and the fathers gave them for protection as well. But they these passed on into the community, non-native community. Um, is there a story that you're finding that may be of reference points for, for those stories? Yeah, I, I haven't found any yet. Um, I, I do know that um, everything that children brought to those schools with them was taken away. And I think it's the responsibility of the people that know about those uh, belongings to return them to the community, right? It's a very, uh, it makes it makes non-Indigenous people very uncomfortable to discuss this, but the more we discuss it, the more the truth comes out. I'm hoping the easier it will be, and maybe, you know, that will tug on their conscience and they'll start returning those belongings, because I know that a lot of children took special items with them, like you say, for protection, and everything was taken away. Their clothes were taken away, everything. And, you know, those things are out there. And I, I really... Um, I really hope and pray that those things will come back to communities, to the families they should come to. And I'm wondering about this archaeology firm to uh, help you discover or, or do ground penetrating radar. Is there a ceremonial practice before you do that and after you uh, actually go to these sites to maybe find graves? Yeah, then that's up to every community that are the, you know, the keepers, uh, you know, 
the traditional people of that site. So we did have a ceremony here was 24 hours before we did the ground penetrating radar. Um, the elders came and um, it was really an important ceremony and there's, you know, a ceremony during and after the work. And the firm that came to do this work for us here, um, we're very aware of that. They had worked with a number of First Nations community in um, Alberta and Saskatchewan. So they even brought on one of the GPR machines, they had a little brown teddy bear that had us, you know, um, remember all the children t-shirt on. So they were, they were very, very well informed and very sensitive um, to doing this work with us. And like I say, they did it pro bono. They didn't charge us anything. And it was yeah. just, like I say, one small area, but it's important that um, a lot of these firms, they make their living off of everything they, they touch is, is indigenous land. You know, every mm -hmm. area they, they do GPR, they do archeology span on is indigenous land and indigenous history. So this is sort of a way of them giving back. And I've heard there's another um, archeology span firm that has been working with the community and the elders at the Mohawk site, working pro bono to look for possible unmarked burials there. So it's really, um, it's great to see these companies step up and, and give back. And I really hope that more companies will do that because, it, like I say, we're looking at minimally 950 sites in Canada. And, and I'm sure that number could, could double once we, you know, do a few more years of thorough research. Every single one of these sites possibly has unmarked burials. Every single one needs to be investigated. And, and then the work to, to bring the children home needs to be completed if that's what the communities wish to do. I'm finding that through, through the years, you know, these old pictures come up and presenting them to elders. And people are have found their grandfathers, grandmothers, and stories they never have heard about them being in boarding school. And it's like news to Native people. There was a wall against, or actually it's a censorship. And so like I described earlier, my mother wouldn't tell me these things or tell her children any of these stories until a certain time of her life. And do you think that would push it into the present where we can actually speak to each other in public and the rest of uh, America at large. Have you been finding anybody referencing pictures that they found maybe in their attic or in their basement? There's a lot of uh, pictures. We've redone um, one of the levels of Shinwa Call was a former residential school. It's now um, classrooms and administration offices for Algoma University. And they have redone one whole sort of section of the campus um, and they're redoing the main auditorium as a permanent display of the residential school. So they have a really big archive here of the residential school, and they have a lot of early pictures of people on the wall. And that's really important because, yes, there was a wall of silence and shame. Uh, people didn't want to talk about being sexually assaulted. They didn't want to talk about digging a grave, you know, because they weren't able to talk about it then. And they were, I'm sure, threatened with death if they ever talked about yes. it, you know? And, and how do you get past that? I mean, I was in what was called a girls residential school from the time I was 13 till I was about, I think almost just before I turned 16. I never broke any laws. I didn't do anything wrong, but my mom was a, a half-breed single parent 
And I went picking apples um, from Canada into Washington in the States and the police uh, brought us back and, and uh, took my friend back to the res, but we didn't live on the res. So they put me in this maximum security, what they called residential school. I didn't talk about it for years. There was so much shame. And then I realized one day, oh my God, I didn't break any laws. I didn't do anything wrong. You know, and I was, mm -hmm. and I had to get past that. And it was other people that told me, talk about it. You know, talk about it. There's a group of, of First Nations girls that want to sue the government uh, for that place. And I think there's a was a law firm working on it. And, you know, I, it made me realize, too, about residential schools. Holy, how could you ever get past that as a child? And the fear, when you see your friends dying, when you see your friends being raped, being killed, you know, by these adults who threaten you that if you ever say anything, how, how many years? It takes decades to get past that. And so one thing I see now is since the unmarked burials are found in Kamloops, there's a lot of elders um, providing discussions that, you know, a lot of them posted online that they finally realize they need to talk about it. They need to get it out and and get that out of their system and share that story with with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission here in Canada, a lot of people got to share their story, not everybody. Um, the government kept those records and now they want to destroy them. Like, what's the point of gathering stories on this and destroying them? Well, the point is, it's the federal government. It makes Canada look really bad. So, you know, they had other excuses. Oh, it's private information. The survivors themselves want the stories kept. You know, we're at a, at a place where people are like, oh, we didn't know. And now there's a short window we know. Oh, now let's let's forget it all and bury it all. No, we need to keep discussing. We need to keep looking. And as an academic, you know, and, and, and a leader, we need to continually make sure that this work keeps moving forward and that we will bring the children home. We will find all the children. That's one of my main focuses is, you know, here's all these places. They all need to be searched for unmarked burials. And there's a lot of places where there are where they found unmarked burials that aren't right near a residential school. So if you kill somebody or you want want to bury, you know, people and you don't want someone to know, you're not going to put them on your doorstep, right? Maybe you're going to take them off into the forest or whatever. So there's a lot of areas too outside of uh, these residential schools and colonial institutions. Some where burials have already been found and many more where we need to continue to do this work. Among Native people, there is story, which to us we listen to, but it's a different mindset when they say, prove it. Where are the facts that this story that this elder told happened? Have you run into that dichotomy? There's been, um, there has been some things on social media where people are denying this all happened. and. Um, it's just mind-boggling that they would do that because there's so much evidence. You know, people people have been charged for sexually abusing uh, children and and for violence. Uh, it's been made clear through academic publications and investigations that they put uh, children in electric chairs, they starved them, they did all this research, um, and then you know you go back to Bryce's 1920s report where he said that you know. I think it was 25 to as high as um, was it 80% or 65% of the children that went to residential school were dying, dying of tuberculosis and other diseases. Bryce in the 20s was afraid to publish that. He knew he'd be fired and he'd lose his access to, to that 
information. And so he waited till he retired and then he published it. And I have a copy of that. And he calls the government out, um, you know, and talks about the high death rate at residential schools in the 1920s. There's so much evidence that anybody who denies this is willingly blind. That's all I can say. And you're listening to First Voices Radio. We'll continue with Dr. Paulette Steves as we talk about the history and the ongoing institutions of genocide. This is First Voices Radio. I'm Teokazin Ghost Horse. We'll continue with our second half of First Voices Radio and Paulette Steves talking about the history that is unspoken here in North America. Let's talk about the history, the 16th 20s to the present, a lot of people have said to me, is, is, is my generation, well, you were too young to be at boarding schools or residential schools. Have you run into people, you know, again, the denial, the, the doubting that this actually happened? You know, there's some former residential schools are still running and operating, right? I think the last one in Canada closed in, was it 1986 or 96? Some in the United States are still operating. So people really need to look around, right? But you know, it's it was very well hidden and denied. So I do hear people saying, well, I lived in Sault Ste. Marie my whole life and I didn't know what went on there. I didn't know that was a residential school. You know, they they, they didn't advertise, oh, we're gonna wipe out the culture and annihilate the Indians and make them all white people. The government didn't write those headlines, but that's what it was. And people weren't taught this in school. So I, I get how the general population may not understand it, but you know they didn't learn of it or they didn't know of it even when they were growing up. But you know what? Now with, with media and internet and everything that's out there, you can spend 10 minutes online and find so much evidence. Um, just go to the Truth and Reconciliation website, you know, and just go online and type in Indian Residential School or Indian Day School with your town's name. Something's going to pop up, you know what, because they were just everywhere. It's that's amazing when you look at the map. I'm like, how did they get that many in the far north? Right. They mm -hmm. were determined to wipe out uh, First Nations, Inuit and Métis cultures in Canada. They were determined to clear the earth of the problem Indians, right? And uh, they just went and sent people everywhere. One of the sites that I would recommend listeners is to go to the Canadian Residential School and Colonial Institutions database, and the website is crscid.com. And one more thought, Paulette, the Pope Francis, he recently visited Canada. Well, did you have any reaction to that across the board? Did Native people have a reaction to his visiting and maybe his comments, either pro or con against residential schools? Yeah, I, I haven't followed up on that much, but um, I know that some First Nations people are not uh, happy with their leaders. Some of the Métis people are not happy with their leaders even meeting with the Pope. I think, uh, you know, if the Catholic Church was genuine, uh, you know, first of all, they would openly acknowledge this and they would openly apologize to all First Nations people. Um, the Canadian government changed some order so that the Catholic Church didn't have to pay for those damages to people when they had already been ordered to. And so what they do and what they say is not maybe based on what's right or what's in their heart. It's based on their 
finances, right? And they were supposed to raise millions of dollars for doing this and that, you know, to, to and they never did. They said they couldn't raise that much. They only raised two or three million, but yet they're building millions of dollars of churches. So it's, you know, I, I had a really wise elder one time in Massachusetts when I took over doing some work there and I had to deal with a lot of difficult issues. And she came to me and she said, I know you need to hear this, but when there's problems, when it gets really ugly, follow the trails of money. And you know what? Truer words were never spoken. That's it with any problem, any issue, any social justice anywhere. Follow the trails of money. So when I think about the Pope, I'm like, why doesn't he just step up, admit it? Because there's all this evidence. They know what happened. Apologize and make those reparations, you know. But yeah, no, they've already found ways to get out of putting their money where their mouth is kind of thing. So they're not apologizing and they're not acknowledging it as they should. Would you recommend a book and reference point to what we're talking about. Yeah, uh, any any book that would, for listeners that they could read that would cross the border, so to speak. I don't have any that come to mind. There have been a number of publications in different uh, journals. I don't think there has yet been a very fully comprehensive book on this. There have been some um, books out of California on genocide, which residential schools were a part of. So that's one area I'm going to be adding to on my website is I'm trying to add those papers that are out there, the ones that discuss the experimentation, the electrical chairs, the abuse. And the final category I haven't done yet because it's going to be really hard and I don't want my students that work with me to do it. I want to do it myself is I want a category on my database that shows all of the charges at every, every school against somebody for violence and sexual abuse of Indigenous children. And that's such a hard topic. I just can't ask my student researchers to do it. I'm going to either hire a, a graduate student or do it myself this summer and fill in that category so that people can have this information and really form a full understanding of this history of genocide in Canada, the United States against Indigenous people. This will ultimately have to change laws once this news is out there and I think it's going to change policy and laws. I think it's really important that it's going to change education. So this history was never included in education. And people are sometimes very quick to say, oh, what's wrong with them? You know, a bunch of alcoholics, drug addicts. Why are they so, you know, like over emotional? Well, hello, here's this history. What is the halftime of trauma? So we've had, you know, over 400 years of continual uh, trauma, continual genocide. How how long do you think that takes to recover from? What is the halftime? How many generations to recover from this? We we know full well that people that were abused for years often become abusers because that's all they know, right? So when are we going to be able to turn that down? First of all, we need the, the responsible parties and the governments to step up and acknowledge this happened, that work has begun, then we need them to help create the path to healing. How do we heal from this? How do we reclaim our, our life, our Pimuatsen, our good life, right? A big part of it is when the general population realizes and acknowledges and begins to support 
First Nations, Native American, Métis and Inuit communities in creating those paths to healing and teaching about this. So the teaching about it is a big part of healing because we all know when the general settler population learns about this, they're gonna start forming an understanding of why we have such high political and social disparities and intergenerational trauma. I think that is a huge piece of healing and it's a community healing, right? Not just the indigenous, but the non-indigenous community that we need to support us moving forward to support creating paths to healing. So I think that's a really uh, important piece of it. And of course, the more we know about the history, the, the sooner we'll be able to push to have that work done. I really like that, the half life or half point you were making. I recently had a conversation with someone who was listening to the story of boarding schools and, and he said something blunt to me. And he said, well, aren't you tired of being the victim, playing the victim? And I said, well, aren't you tired of being the victimizer? End of story. You know, and it is a fact, uh, Indigenous First Nations, Native American people were victimized. But look how resilient we are, right? The intent was to annihilate totally our cultures. And here we are, and we're growing stronger and stronger every day. We're decolonizing academia. We're decolonizing education. We're creating policies and procedures uh, along the lines of social justice and reclaiming and reviving. So yes, our ancestors and our people were victimized for a long time. Many are still victimized, but look at us turning that around. And you're right. Mm -hmm. When are the victimizers going to turn their policies and procedures and, and their hearts and their minds around? Because it takes a community to work towards healing of such a, an immense problem, an immense event that covered all of the Americas, right? That takes a big healing and a big community to work towards. But your education is key. Um, radio shows like you do are key because people, the more people learn, the more we'll be able to enact and affect better change. Oh, it's an honor to have you here, Paulette Steves on First Voices Radio. And the link to go to to find out more about what's happened and, and ongoing with the residential schools and the unmarked graves being found in North America and probably down in New Mexico. CRSCID, which stands for Canadian Residential School and Colonial Institutions Database, 1620 to the present. So, but thank you, Paula, Steve, it's an honor to have you here on First Voices Radio once again. Miigwech, thank you for inviting me.
Sometimes I thought you felt too much And you crossed into the shadow land And the river was overflowed And the sky was fiery red You gotta play the hand that's dealt you That's what the old man always said That was Robbie Robertson with Fallen Angel by the self-entitled album Robbie Robertson. This next clip is from Nick Mulvey, a friend out of England who's concerned about Mother Earth's climate and a change maybe we don't see and maybe we need to wake up from. Maybe we've fallen back to sleep for those of us who think that we've awakened. And here is Begin Again. I think we've known for a long, long time, somewhere in the back of our minds, that times of great change are coming. Because this model of human life that destroys nature at high rates and, you know, seems to require some to have so much and some to have so little, it just can't be sustained. Begin Again is a song I've written, but it's also a byproduct of inner journeys I've taken into my ancestry, and in particular my maternal lineage, my mum's line. When I write a song, I usually live with it for a while, playing it over and over, letting the song reveal itself to me. And last year, kind of out of nowhere, I started to want to know more about my grandmother, my mum's mum, a woman called Mary. 
I never knew her in flesh and I wanted to find out about who she was and who she is within me today. I suppose the idea of ancestral connection can be seen as a journey of personal integration. It's kind of like everyone who's ever lived before us is, in a way, present now here within us, on the level of our DNA codes within every cell. And this is just like a material reality. And it's in this way that we can make contact with our ancestors. And we can ask them for help and we can express our fears and we can give our thanks. So when I was writing this song, the words and the melodies actually allowed me to grieve. And in a way, Begin Again is an opportunity for listeners to do the same. And when we do this, you know, when we like actually release our feelings, we are able to kind of see the world afresh. Uh, new possibilities are made available to us when we release this energy. And we can go forward in ways that we couldn't see before. So in this way, like, grieving is actually a really key component to us making sense of the times that we are living through and making available all the options we need to move forward. So this song and the whole Begin Again EP is exploring this idea of grief and ancestral connection. These are definitely times of grief and wonder. And in this position, you know, with so much on the line and all these systems dying around us and everything changing, you know, what is really important is revealed to us. I mean, in the lockdowns, our lives just stopped, you know, suddenly we couldn't just go to work and we had to be together and we had to remember what that was all about, just being together. And, you know, at the same time, we were plunged into all this uncertainty, but we watched the spring unfolding together. And we heard and we shared all those stories of a resilient natural world, ecosystems and animal populations that were able to recover when given this chance. I wrote Begin Again before the pandemic and recorded it just before the lockdowns began. I was with friends and we were down in Cornwall and in fact the recordings I made were meant to be demos and I didn't expect them to actually be released. But as the crisis then unfolded and affected us all, I felt that I actually had something to offer my listeners. Times of crisis make the important things really clear the things that give us a sense of meaning and purpose. And Begin Again as a song is all about this. I mean, it comes from my own journey into family and ancestry, but it goes further. It's about our extended family connections to our rivers, our lands, to the rain, to the animals, to the beauty and the mystery of what we're a part of. With the lyrics, my intention from the start was to combine images of our bodies with images of the land and its flesh and its tissues. Above all, Begin Again is a grief piece, and that comes hand in hand with celebration because both are about deep, deep feeling for what we love and for the temporary nature of what we love. And the song is also asking questions. You know, can we see the sacred in the ordinary? Can we see the interconnectedness and the interdependence of all things? And can we see this in time? Can we see this in time before we lose it all? Pain. 
There's rain in the river, there's a river in my veins. Very young as we may be, you know, the blood in you and me is as old as blood can be. Is as old as blood can be. As old as blood can be. Markings on my hand, ancient lines of living love awakening in this land. Saying I am in the forest, in the city and the field. I am in the bounty. Come on, know me as I yield. I am in the falcon, in the otter and the stone. I am in the turtle dove with nowhere left to go. In the moment of blind madness, when he's pushing her away. And in the ear who hears her say, can we begin again? Oh baby, it's me again. I know you are so different to me, but I love you just the same. I love you just the same. I love you just the same. Hey, thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. My name is Teokasen Ghost Horse, and that was Nick Mulvey, a friend who lives in England, and uh, he talks about, you know, the desperation of the humans. 
trying to figure out where we're at with nature when we're not really speaking the languages of nature because there's many nature languages. Um, we put human rights above nature rights or nature law or natural law in this case, and we can, we cordon ourselves off and isolate ourselves as a species by thinking that we are over and special away from nature when it's really us. So I like to, you know, go out with just some thoughts from what I've been writing over the years and just what I've been talking about over the years. So some of you know that this radio program that I have hosted for 30 years, 30 years, still feel like I'm a young man back in grad school in 92. Um, but here it is, 2022. Um, one of my ancestors, his name was Crazy Horse. <laughs> Even though there's no really word or thought for crazy, that's what it was interpreted to. So, Tashunke Witko, which really means his horse is enchanted. He was born somewhere about 1840, and he died around September 5th, 1877. Who, And he was a Minikoju in Ogallala, Lakota, and was quoted saying something that gets at this truth. And um, he said that uh, we live in the shadow of the real world. And when I think about that, I think about no matter what language you speak, and I, I believe that a hidden, nurturing world has already discovered you. And it's already at work with you, and whether you know it or not, whether you know it or not. And uh, humans have already been given the gifts, tools, and potential for this relational knowing. And yet this source often goes unacknowledged. And since we lack understanding of the sublime intelligence of nature's nurturing, the nurturing that becomes the human body, that is the human body, Though we may speak of lack and yearning, I acknowledge that this already present hidden world is already listening to you and meeting every need with abundance. I also acknowledge the whole process of the sun as a verb, a giving living being through the trees, rooting, leafing, creating consciousness, and finally producing the reciprocity of life-giving oxygen. And as we re return carbon dioxide to the trees, which as a process is a form of acknowledgement to the sun, and I think about the metabolizing that we have forgotten that we do every every day. Instead, we, we, we talk in metaphor. And like metaphor for Native peoples are often thought that we see in pictures. But when we metabolize, we have words for these, and we can say many things. But one, one word in generalizing a term is midakuya oyasi. And being Lakota, that has deeper meaning than just we are all related. And many people have taken that and distorted it. And um, so in this moment, the, the, the power um, to move the impractical is, is ours within the languages of the earth. And so when I say these languages are very old, much older than the one I'm speaking right now, which is English, then we have to really understand, as you know, I've had a few guests from Australia 100,000 years ago. They still have a sustainable culture as much as can be without the colonial imposition of destruction and taking away that rootedness to the land that they are from, just as we as indigenous here in the Western Hemisphere are from. 
and uh, we're not going to anywhere. This is who we are. So I talk about these Australians as, as having this 100,000-year-old culture compared to a young culture of five, six, even up to 7,000 years that we refer to in the Western Hemisphere as this new and upcoming uh, culture that it is. And it, we're always told to leave the old behind because that's what they want you to do. They want to forget your roots. You call it ancients, but we call it the future. So the future that we say is that all the ancient people that we know, our ancestors, they go into a future ahead of us. And this is what the society cuts cuts the ancestors, the elders off, so we no longer know and feel what the roots are to this planet and to this land. And so with that, I want to give you this sense of fulfilling that we do this without dogma or religion. And uh, it's more relaxed when you do it this way in, in that binary thoughts such as war and peace. They're always impractical. And it's not cause and effect. It's not hierarchical, top and bottom. It's not a beginning and ending. That's the box, the pair box, as I call it. And so, you know, Mother Earth, when's the last time you gave time to Mother Earth? I think about that. So I want to say that and, and say it just a little bit. Uh, those who want to find out more about the work that I do, um, please go to Akantu Institute, A-K-A-N-T-U-Institute.org, or visit patreon.com slash ghost horse and how I, I am contextualizing original thought, as you just heard, and how I see um, these perspectives of indigenous peoples and how I try to interpret them for you. So once again, try to go to um, patreon.com ghost slash ghost horse and, and see what I do. And thank you very much for joining us here on First Forces Radio. My name is Teokusen Ghost Horse.